Hey everybody, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Folk Stories is a podcast where we have long-form conversations with awesome people. We talk about how they got here, what they do, and the stories that they have to share. Today, my guest is John Lauer, CEO of Zipwhip, a Seattle-based business that enables texting for businesses through software and API solutions. Zipwhip is one of Seattle's fastest-growing private companies and was the first business that made it possible for landlines and cell phones to communicate with each other. Prior to Zipwhip, John was already neck-deep in entrepreneurship. It's something of a lifelong passion of his and started when he was 13 and trying to come up with business ideas of businesses that a 13-year-old could viably start. John founded his first company at the age of 21 called Good Level, which was a web design firm in Detroit that made websites for companies such as GM and Ford. John also dropped out of college before finishing his degree in computer science and vowed to never do anything that would require a resume. In today's episode, we talk about John's storied history and start in entrepreneurship. We talk about the makings of Zipwhip and the state of texting. And we talk about the focus and people that it takes to start a business. And now, without any further ado, I give you John Lauer. John, welcome to Folk Stories. Thanks uh, for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I looked at your history, and it seems to me that you've done business all your life um, from before you graduated from college. And so the first thing I'm curious about is why business? Why is this something that seems to excite you? Oh, man. If I go back to even like my earliest years, being 13, I wanted to start a company. Uh, in fact, I started trying to come up with business ideas at 13 to just, what can you do as a 13-year-old to make money? Um, but I think that the essence of why I love business is that if you contribute to humanity, humanity rewards you back, which gives you more ability to contribute. So it sort of can it pancake layers on top of itself. And that's just is super exciting to me. When you were 13, what sort of business ideas were you coming up with? <laughs> oh, man, there, were, there weren't a lot of options. And so instead, I'm like, okay, I'll write a book about ways a 13-year-old can make money, but I'll make money off of the book. Uh, I think I got about three chapters in, and I was writing in, like, you know, WordPerfect on my 286 PC clone, uh, and, and then I, it just fizzled. So <laughs> lesson learned. So you um, started your first – well – LinkedIn business, that I could tell, um, from before you were 21, and you worked with GM and Ford, and who were yeah. not small companies. No, it was, you know, so I grew up in Metro Detroit, and um, I was just jonesing to get out of college and start my first company. So I finally uh, got going on that. It was called Root Level. And we were web application developers back in like 97, 98, when that was a super cutting edge thing. And given that we were in Detroit and there were not a lot of companies like us, sure enough, Ford came knocking, had us build one of their earliest versions of their website, and then GM did right after that. And so I was able to grow that company from just me to like 75 people within a few years. And it was amazing uh, because I was still in my early 20s and I was like, wow, you just kind of raise your hand and tell the world you're doing a business and people show up. So 
In that specific case with Ford, how did they find you? Did you do, like, were you going to Ford? Were you telling them, hey, guys, you know, if you want to build a web app, like, you know, check out us in your neighborhood? Or did they just reach out to you in the blue? Uh, you know, we actually put a lot of effort into the PR aspect of the business. Um, it, I kept thinking, if you want to start a company and you want to raise your hand, you have to get the world to know you exist or they don't know to come to you. And so you have to be known out there. Uh, we started getting some pretty good media coverage in the local Detroit area. And so we just kind of became sort of known, not super well known, but known well enough that folks in the industry were like, hey, I heard about this cool company downtown Detroit uh, that could probably do this for us. And when you say you raise your hand, because um, there's a lot, especially like in engineering-oriented um, companies or engineers in general, you have this mindset you used to have this mindset. If you build it, then they will come. Right. But then it turns out if you build it, nobody knows about it, and so, it languishes. So true. And so, you know, when you raise your hand, like, what do you mean by that? How much hand-raising is there involved, and how much of your time do you focus on that? Well, okay, so I think you can just gently raise your hand, or you can climb to the top of the mountain and scream as loud as possible and be like, hey, everybody, this is what we're doing. Come on over and, and check it out. So you do have to get as loud of a scream as you can. And today people call that PR. They call it marketing. Um, you have to let the world know what you're doing because I agree with you. Build it and they will come just does not happen. But I think the challenges of trying to get known are brutal. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges of a lot of companies. Sometimes the better company with the better product doesn't do as well than the company with the lesser product but better marketing. And so we've all seen that lesson learned over and over out there. Yeah, marketing um – I left a big company last year to do my own, and I find that marketing is the thing that I spend probably two-thirds of my time on. Uh, <laughs> I'm not so, surprised. Yeah, working at it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. It's the thing that people usually uh, underestimate. Yeah, they totally do. Um, so when you were at – was it when you were doing group level that you were – you decided to also drop out of college or what is the timeline of events? Okay. So, yes. Um, it's funny because I took a semester off between sophomore and junior year. I remember my uh, roommates being aghast at the notion of me taking a semester off. But I started working on uh, audio uh, software where you could basically do phone calls over the internet. And this was before Skype was invented. But I just kind of saw the potential. And so it just is a reminder of like the mindset I was in of just dying to get out there into the business world. Um, and even the fact the internet was just being invented at that time, the excitement. I mean, we haven't seen a revolution like the internet hit all of us uh, you know, quite to that level. So you can just imagine being in college, like wanting to get out. Um, and so I was always sort of working on different business ideas as I was going to school. I was paying my way through it. So that was always really hard too. Like, okay, why am I sitting here paying all this money when I'm a, a self-learner? Uh, I don't really need to go sit in a room uh, with somebody like forcing something down my throat on what I have to learn when I'm going to go do it on my own. Um, and so that that was always that challenge. Uh, but ultimately still got really far. I actually still had I, – I got – I have one semester to go, and in a way, I, I wear it as a badge of honor. <laughs> Do you think, you know, some people look at that like one semester, like I've already, some cost, right? I've already put in so much time into this. Why not just finish this, get my degree? You never know what's going to happen in the future. Did that thought ever occur to you? Like, was it hard to leave? Oh, no. a absolutely. The thought occurred to me, but I wanted to do the exact opposite, to wear it as that badge uh, through the rest of my life because... Um, to me, that's sort of your standard course is go get your degree, put it on your resume, 
and then it becomes a really important thing. So I committed at an early age to never, ever need a resume my entire career. And the reason you wouldn't need it is if you're always starting your own company, you just don't need it. Do you remember, so that commitment, um, I think that's one where I see a lot of people struggle with. Um, so I've worked in tech for most of my life and you know, every other person seems like I want to start my own company. Like I don't, you know, like I could be doing something better, but then there's a commitment of, well, if it doesn't work out, I like to have a job, you know? And so people don't, or people do it half-heartedly and then go back to Google or Amazon. And so I'm wondering, like when you made that commitment, was that something that like, did something happen that made you able to do it? Was it a gradual um, process where you decided, okay, like this is something I'm going to do or what helped you like walk into that life? I think that starting businesses is a brutal process and you are subjecting yourself to a lot of pain and suffering. But if you fully 100% commit to it, there's no turning back. And I do think a lot of entrepreneurs half-heartedly commit. They give it a try. They go a year and they're like, oh, it's not working well enough. It's not making millions of dollars and they just give up. So I think you have to have a full-blown massive commitment. And I think that uh, – that symbolizes the commitment. And that's just really what it takes. I mean, even with ZipWhip, we're uh, 10 years into this. Um, and some people are like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you've been doing it that long. But my answer back is, that's what it takes. Uh, so no, there, I'm not, I love uh, the decision I made back then and I'm still fully committed, if not even more committed behind it. So let's talk about ZipWhip. For people who might not be familiar with what you guys do, what is your pitch? Okay, so the, the easiest way to describe it is that we're business texting software and APIs. Uh, and it, when you kind of break that down, businesses need to communicate with their customer. And historically, they've used phone calls and email. And those communication mediums are not what they've been in the past. Texting is actually the number one way to talk to people now. It is the most ubiquitous medium out there. It is the quickest. It's People actually read the stuff you send. Uh, and so the world has changed, consumer behavior has changed, and businesses have to change with it. But they need software to give them access to the texting communication medium. And that is what ZipWeb does. And so when I think of texting um, via software, I think of, like, what about Google Voice? What about, you know, other people that do this? What makes ZipWeb different? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, the texting for the consumer is the native texting app that comes on their phone. On iPhone, it's the iMessage app. On Android, it's just the built-in uh, app. Maybe it's Android Messages. Maybe it's the app Samsung gave you. So, of course, there's software out there. Um, but what about on the business side of the equation? Now, you mentioned Google Voice, but if you know, if if Google Voice were really the answer, every business would have just completely moved to Google Voice. It's a free service. So why hasn't why has barely any business moved to it? So I think Google Voice serves a purpose in a certain niche arena. Um, but broadly, businesses still have phone numbers. They put their phone number in the biggest font in their ads. They put their phone number in the biggest font on their glass window uh, at the strip mall. That phone number represents their identity in the telecom world. It's like a dot-com domain name. It's a big deal, and I think people don't realize what a big deal it is. And so that, that phone number is the way to do traditionally voice communication, but now consumers would actually prefer to text you on that number rather than call you. Uh, even just think about how loath you are to get voicemails now. You, you don't even really want to listen to them. 
wouldn't you way rather have a text from the business saying, hey, your appointment's tomorrow? And then you're able to reply back and be like, oh, man, I got to move that. I got a last minute thing. I mean, that's just the convenience that we want. And whether you like it or not, you still have to talk to businesses and they still have to talk to you. And so if you're going to talk to them, why not text them? Exactly. When you started ZipWeb, and so you mentioned this has been a 10-year journey now. At the very beginning of that journey, was ZipWeb focused on business texting, or how did it change over time? Yeah, no. Initially, we were focused on consumer texting, um, although the core thesis of texting is an open communication medium. Humanity needs it uh, versus what we saw with instant messaging was we kept seeing companies kind of come and go in the instant messaging space. Um, the first example would be uh, like AOL Instant Messenger. And then uh, we had Yahoo Messenger and MSN Messenger and all these different sort of closed ecosystems. At least what I took away from that is that humanity needs a quick, short format, high priority communication medium. But texting is emerging as the open version of that standard. And so it is going to stand the test of time solving some of the problems that still exist in that industry are worth solving. And so initially, um, when we started doing ZipWhip, you were getting texts on your phone, no problem, but you couldn't get them on your laptop. You couldn't get them on your desktop computer. You couldn't get them on your tablet. And so we were trying to solve that by moving texting to the cloud. I always described how texting was sort of stuck in jail on your phone. And in a large way, it's still kind of stuck in jail on your phone. Different providers have tried to solve it. Apple now has the iMessage app that you can put on your MacBook. The problem is if you have a Windows laptop and an iPhone, you're totally stuck. You have no solution. Uh, so it's still pretty broken out there for the consumer. But at least it's in good enough shape that everybody uses it. Uh, but ultimately, we couldn't solve that problem because of technical hurdles, mostly uh, because of technical hurdles with the the infrastructure and with the devices themselves. Uh, so we pivoted to doing business texting um, because there, the, the premise was, okay, there's 200 million business phone numbers in the U.S. Uh, that cannot text, but there's 330 million mobile phones that text like crazy. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Let's go solve it. And when you say those business numbers cannot text, do you mean that they were not capable of sending text messages or there's not a like a software-based solution in which you could do that in a scalable way? There were a few layers. One is um, the, the wireless operators invented texting and they interconnected, but they didn't interconnect with any landline operators or any landline numbers. So we had to go initially talk to the wireless carriers and say, hey, would you technically enable us to turn on a landline number or a VoIP number or a toll-free number? Uh, and that took about a year of different discussions to finally make headway. And indeed, we solved that problem lock, stock, and barrel. That created the layer where we could then create the software to give to the businesses. And so that was really the second problem set we had to go solve. Uh, and indeed, we did. And then we were able to go to market and start selling it. And when you guys were doing that, <clears throat> it seems that you know before ZipWhip came into the industry, that really was impossible, like the whole landline to mobile and I'm wondering, like, did nobody else think of this? Or, like, why was it that nothing was done in that space? Yeah, it was not possible. Uh, I asked myself that question a lot, too. Like, wow, why was that opportunity just sitting there? Why hadn't it been solved? Um, and, you know, I think that's just the nature of some industries where things are just broken and nobody thinks that it's fixable. Uh, and we had sort of the audacity to say, let's go fix it. And when you did, and when so... It seems like, um, you know, when you made the pivot from consumer to business, um, 
there were lots of things you could have tackled. Like just you know, doing the consumer version of the business app would have been a big deal. Um, why was it important to connect landlines and mobiles? Well, I think that you you know when you think about will every business just move to a mobile phone and you just kind of run that simulation in your head, you conclude no, they will not do that. Um, and so you're still going to have phone numbers that aren't attached to an iPhone. Um, and we still see it today. You know, and a lot of people are like, oh, landlines are dying. But really, if you look at the numbers, they're not. Businesses are still completely buying phone numbers for everybody. Um, and even if some of that use is moving to mobile phones for employees, the main phone number for a business doesn't just go to an iPhone. It goes into a, a complicated system. It goes into an IVR. It goes into desk phones. It goes into PBXs. So it's a gigantic market. And even if you look at the shift uh, or companies that have gone IPO in the last uh, few years, like a, like a Ring Central or an 8x8, it kind of indicates, or even Vonage, it indicates that there was just more of a technology shift. Uh, in terms of how you got the voice traffic to the business user, but the phone number doesn't go away. I mean, even think about the most revolutionary device arguably ever invented with the iPhone um, comes with a phone number. Uh, so, the, you know, phone numbers are just this like innocuous thing that people don't really think about because they take it for granted. And yet, uh, there's still it, it's a massive ecosystem out there. And here we are uh, enabling texting on these 200 million numbers and growing a massive business around it. It always uh, fascinates me about how important, like, I'm not going to call landline legacy, though it seems like it fits the title, but like how these technologies, once you invent them, they never go away. And you, and I'm speaking like in my former life, I used to work at AWS, and I know that like we supported companies of all different stacks and like running FTP servers on Cobalt and an on-premise data center and how these things like once they're built, they will keep running and figuring out some way to service like these seemingly out of date technologies turns out to be a huge opportunity because nobody else does. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of billion dollar businesses still serving stuff we would servicing stuff that we would consider out of date. Um, but I, I think it actually still goes more back to the power of human communication and how we need common language. And a communication medium just manifests the common language. So you and I are speaking the common language of English right now. We don't have to pay a royalty for every word we speak. Uh, had a private company invented the English language, we wouldn't be using it. And so voice communication, email communication, texting equal our modern-day version of common language. And so it, that's why as much as we might say landline and think old school – we're really just talking about a, a common language, which is what are the, the difference between these open communication mediums and closed. Closed ecosystems, closed communication mediums do die over time. Open ones continue to flourish. And that's why even the voice calling system, no matter all the cool stuff that folks like AWS do uh, or Microsoft, you know, even Skype started to have most of its success with Skype out and Skype in when you could actually attach a phone number because they went from their closed ecosystem to the open one. And that's what worked. Um, so, and, and it's hard because I don't think there's a lot of people who talk about open versus closed communication mediums, but there's a lot of sort of theory around it. When you look at the dominant uh, communication platforms of the day, I'm thinking, well, specifically in the consumer end, you know, you have people on WhatsApp, you have people on Messenger, all of China is basically on WeChat. What do you think of that 
Like, do you see that as something that is going to exist side by side with traditional texting? Or how do you see that moving in the future? Yeah, so I think based on history repeating itself, all closed ecosystems for communication die eventually. So I predict right here and right now, those eventually die. Um, and, you know, it's because of this premise of open versus closed. Now, when you think about different uh, economies and different cultures, sometimes the monolith still sustains its stu- itself. And so, you know, it, WeChat could be here for uh, a, a while. Um, but even today, as much as people, you know, talk about uh, things like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, in a lot of countries, there's a lot of move to, to, to innovate on the open ecosystem and make it work. Um, arguably, they maybe never had an open ecosystem. Maybe the carriers always charged way too much money per text message in a certain country, and that's why the consumer was incented to move to a WhatsApp. At least in uh, the U.S. and other markets where texting was uh, essentially free, um, we got the essence of an open communication medium, and then it's continued to flourish. When you look at texting as it is today, um, what are the open problems or opportunities that you see in the next five years from now? Okay, well, so if you think about it just as fundamental human communication between businesses and consumers and then uh, adding value, there's a lot of stuff we have to do in our lives that we're, that's just annoying. Um, like, we, we need to order pizza every now and then because we're hungry. And at that moment in our life, it's the most important thing in the world to us. But we also want it to be easy. So should you just be able to text your pizza order in saying, hey, give me the same thing as last time? And they reply back, yep, gotcha, two larges, breadsticks, you know, thing of Coke. Uh, we got your credit card on file. We'll be there in 35 minutes. Done. Like it was one text in and one text back and you're that, – like that, that's the dream. That's the utopia. And I think that on the business side, you need a lot of software to make that perfect. And so that's where ZipWhip comes in. So you need not just basic messaging, but you need automation and workflow. You need to connect to everybody's business systems. You need payments. Uh, you need um, intelligence around it. So this is a pretty exciting arena. Uh, with all sorts of things to go solve and to append the human conversation with automation. When you look at your current customer base, um, who are your primary customers and how do they use the point? Yeah, so we, you know, we, we have kind of a broad span of customers today. We've got a lot of small businesses, uh, and that's where we started. Um, I remember uh, our first sales guy walking across the street and selling the dentist office across the street called Supertooth. Uh, they became our first customer, and we opened up the bottles of champagne, and we're like, you know what? We think we can scale this. Um, over the years, we've started selling to more like mid-market customers, to enterprise, uh, and to a lot of channel partners. Um, we have a lot of the carriers, like landline operators, that resell our software. We have a lot of different like CRM systems that embed or resell our software. And so we've figured out a lot of different ways to get uh, our software out into the marketplace. So ZipWhip, um, I like saying it just because the name um, sounds very zippy. It's got a lot of alliteration to it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how did you come up with the name? What's uh, Was there a lot of discussion? Were there alternatives? How did you finally land on this one? Yeah, so um, early on when we needed a name, we started brainstorming <clears throat> sort of synonyms 
for things that represented the essence of texting. So fast, quick, zippy. Uh, and then we started even like going off on like, what are some sentences that kind of describe what we do? And, you know, we would talk about how texting is the closest thing to telepathy. If I want to get a thought from my head into your head, what's the quickest way to do it? Well, telepathy is, but maybe the second best way is texting. Um, or I want to get that thought into your brain at the crack of a whip. Uh, and so we just started throwing a lot of words on post-it notes. I think at one point in my kitchen, we had like 300 post-it notes with different words on it. And then uh, my wife, God bless her soul, started combining the words and searching GoDaddy to see if the .com domain name was available. And she got it down to three names. Uh, I think one of them was like Cloud Hop. And then I don't remember the other one. And the other one was Zip Whip. Uh, we're after a few hours of her searching. She's like, okay, there's three .com names available. Which one do you want? And so we picked ZipWhip just because of the, the rhyming, uh, you know, it's fun to say, and it was short. It was only seven letters. Uh, and so that, you know, the rest is history. When you started the journey of building ZipWhip, um, it wasn't the first company you built. You've, you know, gone through this process several times now. Um, and every time you do this, um, like you said, like starting a company isn't easy, and there's a lot that needs to go into it. How do you figure out initially, like the sort of people that you work with, the part of how do you form your founding team? Yeah. Okay. So you know, it's it's interesting because I will say that starting a company by yourself is a pretty lonely endeavor, and so through the years and doing this, I have found that you do want to have a good core founding team because you need the support from each other. It is brutal, uh, especially in the the first few years. Um, and so I think you just – you look for people in your life that you think um, you know, are, are willing to do it, will have the commitment, uh, are excited to do it, uh, have the ambition. And hopefully you've surrounded yourself with folks like that and then it's easy or you have to kind of go out searching. And I, I think that there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think today if you were going to go sit down at like an incubator – like a Pioneer Square Labs or something, you have a lot of people automatically that you're surrounded by um, that you can start to kind of uh, become friends with and start working together. Um, but I think it's pretty important to find that team because, you know, through the years I've had scenarios where co-founders weren't willing to stick it out and moved on and then it really kind of hurts the momentum. Um, and it's just maybe, you know, they just, it, it, was, it was tough uh, or it was too, there's too much uncertainty. Um, so, you know, just looking for those initial skill sets uh, where they can really stick it out like you can. Your current co-founder, the other John, how did you two meet? Yeah, so in a way, I think it was pretty organic where uh, clearly he em embodies the essence uh, of an entrepreneur, a startup entrepreneur. Uh, he was in Metro Detroit, too, and he started hearing about the growth of my first company, and we threw a party that he showed up at. I did not know him, and he was sort of trying to grab me and have a, a conversation, and he sent me like this five-page long email uh, a couple days later. I was like, oh, my God, this is like the longest email anybody's ever sent me. Um, and we just started connecting and brainstorming and uh, just became great friends through that process um, and always thought, boy, what a great person to start a company with, although it was only ma many years later that we finally decided to do it. You mentioned that you know when you do look for a co-founder, you, you need to find somebody that can stick with you long term. Um, it's kind of like a marriage, so you good times and bad times. Yeah. <laughs> if you were you know, trying to advise somebody who was trying to pick out a co-founder, like what have been the things that you look for that are either 
indicative of a good co-founder or indicative that it might not work out? Um, I still think that that's pretty tough to do, but I think that you do want to find people who compliment you where they've got strengths that you don't because uh, although you might think that you're amazing, you're not. Uh, you know you, you've got your strengths in certain areas, um, and and so I think that's a big part of it. But I think you've got to look at are they in the right place in their life, if you're hopefully in the right place in your life to do a startup where this can work. Uh, I mean, it is you, – you're not going to be making a lot of money in those first few years, so you are, you know, the the amount of cash flow that's needed. I do think it's actually way easier to start a company when you're in your 20s, because you don't you know you don't have mouths to feed with kids yet, um, and you almost have to kind of break out of that early because later on it, it there's almost too much stuff going on in your life. Um, so I think some of it's timing uh, on your life and theirs. Uh, but it's probably a lot of gut feel too, um, you know, be, and, and then thinking like when we're in the tough times, how's this going to go? Or even do you have the sort of the same cultural mindset, um, you know, the same sort of trust level and new employees you would hire, for instance. I remember that being a problem with one of my early co-founders where I was a trusting person and he was a really distrusting person. And it really turned into a lot of disagreements that, that hurt the business. Yeah, I can see how that would be complicated. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like those are little things that they just do not teach you that in any business class course at school. And that particular case you were talking about, how did did it come to a resolution, or was it just an ongoing problem? I mean, ultimately it did, um, but it, in a way, it came to a conclusion where there was just bad feelings about it, and, and it really just came down to whether you give new employees keys to the office or not. And I wanted to give them keys, and he didn't. Um, and and I, in a way, I was baffled at the notion that you would hire and trust an employee, but then not be willing to give him a key to the office. Um, and I just think that that's that's just more of a, a, a different view and outlook uh, on life. Right. So something I read about you, or something that you mentioned on your, one of your profiles, is that you are a person of great focus. That you can focus on one thing and focus on it for a very long time. And I think especially t in today's world where there's always another thing popping up, a new shiny technology, a new blockchain, a new industry. Um, I want to talk about focus and like, were you, was this always how you were or was this something that you developed being able to focus? Ooh, I think early on I was unfocused and started to realize, especially at the first startup, that if you don't stay focused, you never give any one idea long enough to ferment or flourish and you're doing yourself a disservice and in fact it's it will be the death of your company so you have to stay tightly focused because it's not going to happen overnight you're not superman your whole team's not superman you have to give it time to work uh you've got to refine it you've got to like tweak the details and you can't do that immediately because you don't even know what the details are that you have to tweak. And so I also saw a lot of entrepreneurs early in my career who would just move on to the next shiny thing way too quickly. So it was a lesson learned. And I, I think even today I still try to um, really stay true to that because it's easy to start branching in all sorts of other different ways. And all you really do is you dilute your effort in all of the areas that you're you're playing with. So you've got to stay focused. So – one of the dominant um, themes now in Silicon Valley, especially in the startup world, is fail fast. You know, like, try something, get data. If it doesn't work out, then kill it and move on to something different. Where do you think, 
or how do you think about that in terms of focus? Okay, I think that there is some virtue in that notion, but you also have to be really smart about how quickly fail fast uh, should be. I mean, even last week, um, the uh, Satya Nadella was talking at this M12 summit about how at Microsoft they tend to plant trees and then uproot the tree way too quickly and then ask themselves, well, why didn't it work? And it was because they didn't let the tree like grow some deep roots and stand strong. So fail fast would seem to then be just pulling out the tree uh, before the roots have been uh, able to grab hold. Um, but I also think that in a startup, you're running a lot of experiments. You don't really know what your future is. So you also have to know when to stop running the experiment. I think the people who get it right are the ones that succeed and the ones who either kill it too quickly or wait too long to kill it is, are where the failures are at. And one more thing about focus, because I want to be focused on this before moving on, <laughs> is how do you decide initially what exactly it is you're going to focus on? If you're going to dedicate so much of you know, your time to it, how do you know you're doing it on the right thing? Okay, so this is an area where I always joke that this is where you have to burn a lot of calories in your brain running the simulation. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to put the effort into burning the calories to run the simulation in their brain. And look, doing brain power and processing is hard work. Um, but before you go and start putting real dollars and real resources at something, run the simulation on whether you think it's going to work or not and don't lie to yourself. I see a lot of things in the business world where people just kind of do fake things, fake solutions where they're like, oh, this will work because they had one meeting about it for an hour and then they just kind of go at it full bore uh, and they, they know in the back of their head it probably won't. And so you can litmus test a lot of stuff. Um, I always talked about how early on in my career I would have like 100 business ideas and then I would let them ferment in my brain for like a year and I would shoot holes in them left and right. And the ones that stood the, uh, the shooting of the holes are, were the good ideas, the ones that would percolate to the top because it was like, no, there's enough stuff that makes this a robust idea. There's going to be a revenue model. There's going to be a need for it for a long term. There's an ability to create some competitive um, sustainable advantages. Um, you know, It won't get dis disrupted by other stuff. That's a lot of brain power you got to do, and you have to do it every day still at your company um, even as you move forward. I mean, we still do it every day here. If you were to start over in some completely different industry, nothing to do with communications or texting, what do you think that might be? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I think as you, as you get older, you do stop the coming up with a bazillion ideas like I, I did in my 20s especially. Um, but there's still a lot of good ideas out there. You know, ne necessity is the mother of invention. And so you're always running into stuff in your life where you're like, man, this should be done in a way better way. Um, but I also think that whatever idea you might have today might not be relevant a year later. So you always have to come up with the new strain of ideas because um, a lot of starting a business is just timing. Uh, enough stars have aligned in the universe where this next idea has legs. Uh, and so whatever idea you've got today, you, you usually do have to throw it away uh, and come up with a new idea. So I don't know if there's any great answer, but you know, when you look at things happening uh, beyond communication, you look at like the robotics world, 
uh, factories are being automated by robots right now. Uh, that's there's all sorts of excitement uh, there. The the world of IoT is exciting because devices are getting cheaper and smaller and faster. Like to the point where you can buy this microcontroller that's like two dollars that has the power of that original two eighty six computer I was writing my uh, book at uh, on uh, at thirteen years old. Uh, and it's got Wi-Fi built in or it's got 4G. I mean, it's incredible, uh, the technology. And so there's layers of stuff you can build on top of it. Uh, on weekends, I like to dabble with circuit boards. And the the way of, of making circuit boards is like archaic almost. So there's all sorts of opportunities. So there's just a lot of places to go. Uh, I'm not going after any of them, though, because I'm really busy focusing on ZipWhip. When you're not focusing on ZipWhip and you need time to recharge or just to take a break. What are the activities or things that you'd like to go to? You know, I think right now my kids are 12, 9, and 6. And so I um, – well, 12, 10, and 6. He just had a birthday. Um, but I try to spend as much time as I can with them because they're growing up so fast. Uh, so a lot of time with family. But then, you know, after that, it's just kind of dabbling with stuff that relaxes my brain. And then it's things like videos on quantum physics and quantum mechanics and quantum theory, which is such crazy stuff that it actually hurts your brain. So I'm not sure why I find it relaxing. Um, and then it is things like electronics and just kind of, you know, tinkering and playing around. I, I do think one of the things I love about electronics is that when you're manipulating electrons, you are inverting the universe. And this is sort of a lot of quantum physics theory. And you start to feel like you have godlike powers. And so I'm not sure how many people on weekends when they're relaxing get to start to sort of dabble in godlike powers. <laughs> I think – I mean – I think that's a great pitch for why people should start doing electronics. <laughs> they should. <laughs> we need more of it. John, I have a lot more questions, but we're getting close to the end. And so I'm going to shift to my closing questions. Okay. And the first one I usually ask my guests is, what is something that has recently inspired you? This could be something from your own life or something that you've seen elsewhere. You know, we um, just the first thing that comes to mind is we did uh, this thing called a week without um, a couple weeks ago here at the office. And it was one of the, the ideas of somebody here who said, look, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well as a business. We're growing. Things are great. But, you know, out in the world, things aren't so great. And so what if we sacrificed all the food that we buy everybody every week at the company? Uh, and so we did. And it, it saved us $5,000. And we donated it to uh, Mary's Place. And um, a woman from Mary's Place came in and talked to us uh, briefly at our all hands on Friday, and I just was super inspired, um, you know, because we're busy. We're busy working on the company, building it, but it's always nice to kind of step back and think, God, that was really – that was worth it. And it, it was kind of a, the whole week. Like I was like, oh, I don't have my fizzy water, LaCroix to drink, uh, you know, so you kind of feel the, the sacrifice. But it was, it was an okay sacrifice to make for uh, the benefit that we just provided, so – yeah, that's a great story. Um, my next question, what is something that people might not know about you? <laughs> um, boy, I'm, I'm pretty transparent, I think. Uh, might not know about me. Um, okay, so maybe, maybe something people don't know is the amount of I talked about it a little bit earlier, but just about the amount of simulation I keep running about what happens to ZipWhip, where it ends up, where we go, um, and really the the stresses that creates on your brain to sort of think, well, you know, where do we end up here? What do we do? It's even it's even maybe a, a way of describing like a paranoia about 
how do you keep navigating the world? The world's a pretty brutal place. Uh, it sort of takes no prisoners. It'll pull out its samurai sword and cut your head off at a moment's notice. Like it doesn't really care. Uh, and so you're constantly trying to predict where those samurai swords are going to be pulled out. Um, and so, I, you know, it's it's just sort of constantly there. Um, but, you know, you walk around during the day with a smile on your face and you're, and you're happy and you're going along. But I do think that that's part of uh, what it takes to be successful is to kind of always be really worried about the future. This uh, book, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. That's, <laughs> there you go. Um, that's also very popular in stride culture. The but, problem is being paranoid has such a negative connotation. Like, oh, the person is too paranoid. Um, but I think it's the healthy version of paranoid where you're constantly – uh, contemplating your navel, you're looking within, looking within the company, and just still trying to decide: like, are things okay? Are things right? When you do that, how do you know that you know the things that you're looking at? Either you're paying enough attention, or you're paying too little. Like this thing, um, like how do you double check that? <laughs> there is no easy answer. I I joke that boy, wouldn't it be nice if you could just go buy a book on Amazon that's like a manual for how to build a company or your company in particular. And there never is because every company is different and unique. So there's never a playbook. Um, so I think a, a great way is to just ask a lot of people who have seen it before because they can do a lot of pattern matching. Uh, so surround yourself with a lot of um, folks who have been around the block and have seen it. Um, but also, I still think you can trust your gut too. Uh, I think what your gut really is, is you can take hundreds, if not thousands of variables and sort of run that algorithm in your head of what happens as you sort of tweak variables up or down. Uh, and do you get a good outcome or a bad outcome? Uh, but again, that's a lot of calories burned in your brain to do that. Well, uh, good thing that you have food in the office to you know, keep <laughs> those playing calories occupied. And lots of coffee. That too. Um, next question. What is a principle that you like to live by? A principle that I like to live by? Um, I, Off the top of my head, first thing is just do the right thing. Um, I think that you know the world is a complicated place. Businesses are complicated. People are complicated. And... And, and so that can get to be really confusing. And so when it all comes down to it, just do the right thing. Uh, and then that's that should mean you always kind of end up in a good spot. Um, I think it's a really healthy way to live. You're not then sort of worried that uh, you didn't do the right thing. It's just a really good, clear way of, uh, of operating in life. Do you ever get into situations where the right thing isn't very clear? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's constant. Um, and then I think you've just got to kind of take a deep breath, step back, um, you know, breathe a little. And you tend to – things tend to sort of emerge where you, you kind of get a feel for what the right thing is to do. Uh, but it also helps to talk with people. It helps to, you know, just kind of keep thinking about it. Um, yeah. Drink more coffee. <laughs> yeah. those simulations in your head. Yeah. Okay, John, I have one last question before I let you go. And this one's open-ended. Is there anything we haven't talked about or anything you want to announce to my listeners at this time? Um, no, I, there's nothing that comes to mind. Uh, you know, we're, we're at least for, for the company, we're continuing to just keep plugging forward on uh, what we believe, which is that texting is a gigantic industry in the future. We still think it is adding huge value to people's lives. Uh, and so we're just going to keep focusing on what we're doing um, because we think that it's right and it's working. Uh, people love it. 
Uh, we've got a lot more product features that we're going to keep adding in the coming months and quarters and years. Uh, so nothing in particular that, that I'm necessarily going to announce, but like we are definitely investing in the product itself, and um, people are going to love it. Okay, looking forward to that. And in the meantime, thank you so much for sitting down with me, John. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again, which is a few more things before you go. First of all, thanks for listening. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple or Google Play. That really helps other people find this show. So I don't know about you, but this discussion with John made me think about the things in my life that I put focus on. And I find that it's, I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time focusing on one thing versus five things, th six things, a hundred things. And so something I think I'm going to do this week is take some time to run some simulations and figure out what are the things that are worth focusing on. Maybe this will also inspire you to do the same. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, hope you have some great conversations.